Let me read our passage from Isaiah 53. We've been looking at the servant songs throughout Lent, and today we're coming to the end of the series, appropriately culminating on Easter morning. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, why this text this morning besides the fact that it's part of a series? The reason is that when Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, Paul makes a point to say that Jesus rose in accordance with the Scriptures, with the Old Testament Scriptures. I think he means, among many other passages, this passage. I think he's probably thinking about Isaiah 53 that gives us a picture not just of his death, but of his resurrection. Now, through the chapter, Isaiah speaks prophetically and vividly about the death and the sufferings of Christ. And we typically look at this passage as a description of the cross. For example, we did that just on Good Friday. But there's no question that when this mysterious servant comes and dies this terrible death for his people, he's also expected to go on. Something else is supposed to happen beyond his death. So look at the language in these final three verses of this great chapter. Look at the language that Isaiah is using. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see and be satisfied. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He makes intercession for the transgressors. None of the above can be said about a dead person. And yet, Jesus' death is graphically described in this chapter. Conclusion, Jesus was dead, but then he came back to life. The Old Testament prophecies anticipated not only the birth, life, and death of Jesus, but also his resurrection. And this text in particular shows us how necessary the resurrection is, how important it is to us. We're not here to simply mark some date significant in the religious mythology of this congregation. We are here to celebrate the metaphysical, the existential, what other big words can I find? The cosmological shift in the trajectory of humanity. We were reading the Easter story from a, a children's Bible this morning to our children, and it started with, this was not just another day, this was another age. I think that's right. Something happened in the empty tomb that, that transformed not just Jesus, but, but the whole thing, 
The whole thing has been changed by the resurrection. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show us from these verses in Isaiah how the resurrection of Jesus Christ addresses three major, major human problems. Coincidentally, probably not, probably purposefully, these problems are especially relevant to us today in our culture, today where we live. They are the problem of guilt, the problem of loneliness or belonging, and the problem of poverty or lack. So that's my outline. Three problems, and we'll see how the, the resurrection addresses each one. Look with me at verse 12. It says that Jesus bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It means that Jesus who has risen, who is alive today, is presently making sure that we are not seen by God as guilty, that we are accounted righteous, as verse 11 says. We have a future because Jesus made an offering for guilt, verse 10. The point is that our guilt is erased by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you may say guilt is a problem invented and nurtured by religion. It's just a clever way to keep people in church, make them follow the rules. If you think so, you are not alone. I think many, many people today and for about a hundred years have been thinking that. People like Marx, Carl, not Richard, Carl Marx. I'm sorry. Sometimes I just think about Richard Marx. Nietzsche and Freud predicted that once religion is rejected, this is a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, that once religion is rejected, our consciences will be rid of guilt and shame, and our society will function in harmony and beauty. This was the prediction. Many people have said that over a hundred years ago. Much energy has been extend, expended in therapy and education to make people not feel guilty. The result, after a hundred years, over a hundred years of trying it, the result is that guilt appears to be an even bigger, more destructive reality than ever before. In 2017, Wilfred McClay, a history professor at Hillsdale College, wrote an insightful essay entitled, The Strange persistence of guilt, the strange persistence of guilt. This is how he outlines our problem of guilt. Those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered. It has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. This is his point, that having rejected religion as the root of our guilt, we have nonetheless 
not being able to shake off moral responsibility. Moral responsibility combined with our utter inability to reach moral perfection, even if by our own definition, inevitably results in persisting guilt. And so you have people who are still being crushed by guilt and yet lack the means and even language to deal with it. Now, how do we deal with guilt in our secular age? If we have shaken off religion, we have said guilt belongs to religion, let's not be religious anymore, we're secular, and yet we feel guilty. What do we do with it? How do we deal with that crushing guilt? Let me share an insight from McClay's essay. Have you wondered why it seems that everyone seems to have a grievance? Why everyone seemingly feels mistreated and oppressed? Have you wondered why everyone seems to demand someone's apology, restitution, punishment, or worse? Have you wondered why our culture seems to see the world divided into victims and victimizers? There's nothing else, just two categories. Of course, there are real victims. There is real oppression. There is real injustice. But considering that we live in a society that is arguably the most just, the most prosperous, the most fair in history, this sense of victimhood seems very, very strange. Why now? It has become common for a person to define themselves as part of a group suffering pain inflicted by another group. I mean, isn't that the way politicians get elected today? Every group, every voting bloc feels mistreated and demands vindication. And here comes a champion of your particular cause. And those whose oppression cannot be obviously proven appropriate the suffering of another group. You don't even have to suffer. You just have to get close enough to someone who suffers to claim it. Now, I've, honest to you, I've puzzled over this cultural reality until I read McClay's essay. According to his analysis, this is one of the main ways the secular culture, devoid from religious language and religious means, is trying to solve the persistent problem of guilt. He says that identification with victims and the appropriation of victim status has become an irresistible moral attraction. Now, let me give you this quote. I'm making you think a little bit, okay? And I'll make you feel in a little bit, okay? So hold on. McClay says, If one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one cannot be held morally responsible. This is precisely what the status of victimhood accomplishes. When one is a certifiable victim, one is released from moral responsibility, since a victim is someone who is, by definition, not responsible for his condition, nor can point, but can point to another who is responsible. But victimhood at, at its most potent promises not only release from responsibility, but an ability to displace that responsibility onto others. As a victim, one can project onto another person the victimizer or oppressor, any feelings of guilt he might harbor. 
and in projecting that guilt, lifted from his own shoulders. The result is an astonishing reversal in which the designated victimizer plays the role of the scapegoat upon whose head the sin comes to rest and who pays the price for it. By contrast, in appropriating the status of victim or identifying oneself with victims, the victimized can experience a profound sense of moral release or recovered innocence. I think this is exactly what is happening throughout our culture today. The problem is this approach is not working for us. It has divided and polarized our society. The secular promise has been we will be united, we will be in harmony, we will feel good about ourselves, and we don't. People are more anxious than ever today. And while we're quick to blame each other for our problems, we don't seem to do much to solve them. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers a real solution to our problem of guilt. Now listen to me. Here's what the gospel says, the good news of Jesus. This is what he says. We feel guilty because we are guilty before God. We feel guilty because we are guilty. While we certainly use and abuse each other, injustice is a symptom of our rejection of God's love. It is vertical before it's horizontal. Because God is not enthroned in our lives, we enthrone ourselves and attempt, successfully or not, to subjugate everyone else to our desires. And the sense of guilt cannot go away until it is taken away by the only person who can do that. If you are guilty before God, who else can take your guilt away? Only God. But God doesn't do it in the way many misguided therapists try to do it today. He doesn't just tell us not to feel guilty or that we should love ourselves more. Lift yourself higher, the world says. No. God says that He loves us. He loves us more than we can imagine. And that He has provided satisfaction for our guilt. Jesus Christ, who is both God and human, is the only person who can go in between the guilty person and the the holy God. And because of who he is, he was able to absorb our guilt. He was able to take our guilt upon himself, become a sacrifice, able to satisfy God's judgment and wrath. Jesus became the scapegoat. You are not a victim because Jesus became a victim for you. Jesus died for all our sins in our place. And because Jesus rose again, he is offering a not guilty verdict to all who would unite themselves to him by faith. That's the gospel. He offers to us by grace as a gift a guilt-free, condemnation-free life through his death and resurrection. That's the offer. That's the solution to a problem of guilt. One of my favorite rock and roll stories is about the legendary Atlanta musician, Colonel Bruce Hampton. I don't think anybody knows him. Maybe Ted. He's known for some crazy stunts. Actually died on stage 
That's how he ended his life. He once opened for Three Dog Night by playing all their songs. <laughs> That's rock and roll, right? You go to play before the band that is more important than you to get people excited about the band, and you just play all their hits. I like that. <laughs> when you stand before God, Jesus has already paid for all your sins. Friends, he's already played all your hits. It's like showing up to court only to find out that your case has already been decided and you've been clear that's already happened. Now listen to Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's a guilt question, right? Who can make you feel guilty? Who can prove to you that you are guilty? The answer is, it is God who justifies. God justifies you. In Christ, in the death and resurrection of Christ, you have been justified. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and indeed is interceding for us, just as like our Isaiah passage says. He's interceding for us like an advocate, like an attorney, like a defender. If God does not condemn you, who can condemn you? The answer is no one. No one can condemn you. This is what the resurrection of Jesus does to our guilt. My question is, is that your reality? Is that your reality? Are you still trying to work out your guilt by claiming victimhood, real or, or not real? By attaching yourself to somebody who has suffered? By finding a scapegoat among your friends or enemies? Jesus offers you a condemnation-free, a guilt-free life. Now, the second problem is the problem of loneliness. Look with me at verse, verse 10. It says that Jesus shall see his offspring. Again, resurrection language. That Jesus, though he died, he rises again, and he will see his offspring, his descendants, his family. Meaning that his resurrection provides a family for his followers. The gospel claims that our desire for belonging, for relationship, for intimacy, is fulfilled in the crucified and risen Jesus. As one commentator said, we strayed as sheep, we return as sons. It's been frequently observed in recent years that we are in a loneliness epidemic. A 2020 report suggests that 36% of all Americans including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children feel serious loneliness. A third of all Americans, more than half of young adults and half of mothers with young children feel serious loneliness. Not occasional loneliness, but serious loneliness. And of course, loneliness appears to have increased substantially since the outbreak of the global pandemic. While overall mortality rates are in the decline, 
a new category is on the rise in the West. It is called death of despair. It's a new term you hear now, death of despair. More people are dying from drug overdose, alcoholism, and suicide than before. Now, these deaths are seen as a symptom of increasing disconnectedness and lack of meaningful community for many people. And some sociologists correlate it with the declining rates of church attendance. Now, whether we verbalize it or not, we all want to be known. We want to be accepted by others. We want to belong to a community. To have meaningful, safe, close relationships with others, right? Much of my understanding of belonging comes from our experience of adopting our youngest daughter, Evangeline. She became part of our family when, after she spent her first two and a half years in an orphanage in Ukraine, she's now 16. She has Down syndrome and autism and is nonverbal. And a few, so it's hard for us to know what she's feeling, what she's thinking. So a few days ago, my, my wife, Jillian, went to a meeting at Evie's school. And the teachers there used a special device. They're much more disciplined than we are at home. They used a special device to help Evie communicate. And they had some things to share with us, things that they got from Evangeline. When asked what was important to her, Evie indicated music, friends, family, breaks, food and eating, TV, computer, movement. I think I would have answered it the same way when I was 16, except I didn't have a computer. But other than that, I think I'm right there with her. When asked what she did not want, Evie indicated that she did not want to be alone and that she did not want to work. Now, the last thing I want to share from that, from that report is her response to the question, how others can best support her. When asked how others can best support her, she stated, play with me, socialize, talk with me, be kind, be patient, simple verbal directions, schedule routine, and this is the one that got us, love me love me. Needless to say, we were incredibly moved by these answers. In spite of all the barriers Evangeline experiences in communication and in relationships, our little girl wants to be loved. But isn't it true of everyone? Whether we can verbalize it or not, whether we need a device to communicate it, but isn't that true of all of us, that we just want to be loved? Ultimately, that's what we want. Someone said that every baby is born looking for someone who is looking for her. Looking for someone who is looking for her. Don't we all want to just find somebody who's looking for us? The resurrection of Jesus Christ places us into God's family so that we can be called God's offspring, so we can be called God's children. When the Bible talks about conversion, this moment when, when you come to Jesus and you embrace Him by faith and you finally realize that you belong with Him, that He died for you, that He rose for you, that moment of conversion, which is a life-changing experience. When the Bible talks about conversion, 
it often puts it in the language of adoption. Listen to Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's to be brought into his family. So when you trust Jesus, you are given a new family. God is your father, and the people of God are your brothers and sisters. The longing for intimacy and belonging is fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus. The new life he offers to all who dare take him at his word is a life of being loved, being accepted, being treasured, being honored. I know that even as I speak these words, for some of you those are hurtful words because you haven't experienced it where you were supposed to. But the resurrected Jesus comes to offer it to you. He honors you. He treasures you. He loves you. He accepts you. The problem of guilt is solved by forgiveness, by a declaration based on the sacrifice of Jesus. But God goes even further. He doesn't stop at the legal reality of you standing before God. He makes pardoned criminals his children. He takes the newly pardoned criminals and he brings them home. He brings them into his house. He puts us at his table. And he gives us a share in all that he possesses. Co-heirs with Christ. What happens at church every Sunday, what is happening here right now, is a family gathering. Joyful singing, meaningful conversation, lots of expressions of love and affection, and a common meal at the Lord's table. This is family. This is a picture of how God loves us in Christ. This is why Jesus came. And none of this is going to end abruptly. It will keep going. It will become better and fuller into eternity. Are you part of God's family? Is God your Father? Do you have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that proves to you every day, proves to you that you belong in God's family? that you are part of his household, that you are one of the heirs of God. And finally, the resurrection solves our last problem. Now, we have more problems than these three, but these three are pretty important, and they're in our text. So the last one we're going to look at today is found in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, what we see here is, is a, a military victory language that tells us that Christ shares the benefits of his resurrection with us. 
the land taken from the enemies portioned out among his people. The spoils of war are distributed among his people. Our king has won a great victory over death, over our sin, over Satan, over the world. And everything he has taken in that victory, he is now sharing with us. This is what Jesus is doing. Because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, we have this wealth that we can share in right now. The resurrection of Christ addresses the profound need of humanity that is fundamentally poor. We all lack something. There's a fundamental basic deficiency to human experience. Our lives are driven by the hope of finding something we miss and restoring something we have lost. What we have, we seem not to have enough of. What we take hold of, we seem not to be able to keep. And we constantly discover things we did not know we were missing. And yet, having found them, we cannot imagine living without them. I was at Trader Joe's yesterday. Sharp turn. I was at Trader Joe's yesterday. <laughs> and I witnessed... It's, it's just one of those human pictures, right? When, you, when you, just, you see something and it's so casual and ordinary, but it tells you so much about who we are. There's this lady who was in the fruit aisle, and, he, and she discovered pomelo. It's that citrus fruit. It's this big, like, grapefruit-looking fruit. I've never had it. I had to look up what it was. But Trader Joe has it, if you're, if you're interested. <laughs> she was walking, and then she just stopped. <laughs> and she looked at it, and she said, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> it was a moment of wonder. <laughs> it was a discovery of something she had probably not known existed but that brought so much joy and fulfillment into her life. She followed it up by taking a picture with the Pamela. <laughs> and if you knew her name, I'm sure you could see it online. But now, what happened there? She was missing something in her life. She was missing this citrus fruit. But she didn't know she was missing it until she saw it. And then something clicked, and all of a sudden, her life before seemed poor. It seemed that something was lacking, and now, wonder of wonders, the pomelo has entered her life. Now, we, we all relate to that. We don't just lack things, but we also lose things, right? Part of the human experience is, is having lost something or someone. Holidays, as much as we celebrate and Easter is a joyous occasion and I want you to celebrate and sing and clap, but for many, holidays are difficult. Why? Because you think about the people who are not here, right? We've had two deaths in the congregation in the last week or so. Both women were advanced in years, lived meaningful, fulfilling lives, and yet they're both missed today as their families celebrate Easter. Of course, our lives are marked by all kinds of loss, 
I mean, if you think about your day, think about your week, think about your year, you'll find many, many things that you have lost. We lose cars and houses and friends, car keys, and lose the ability to run fast and jump high, as I'm learning. We lose friendships. We lose memories. We lose opportunities. We've come to expect it. We make jokes about it. We say, that's just human. That's just normal. Let me tell you, that's not normal. We just got used to it, but that isn't normal. That's not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how God designed this life. We are not supposed to live faced with the constant reality of loss. And yet, right now, we all lose something. We all lack something. There is something in your life, even if you are the wealthiest, happiest, most fulfilled person in the world, there is something in your life that you don't have and you need it. Anne Lamott, in her book, Operating Instructions, describes wrestling with the idea of being a single mom. When she was pregnant with her son, she found out that her friends were also expecting a baby. Born months apart, the two babies were both named Sam. The other Sam was born with only one arm. And Lamont imagined a conversation the two boys might have someday. She pictured her Sam studying the other Sam and saying, so where's your arm? And the other baby shrugging and saying, I I don't know, where's your dad? Everybody has loss. Everybody has a lack of something or someone. And Jesus, this crucified person who has lost himself, who has lacked himself, when he is risen from the dead, he gets to share the spoils of war with us. Where we lack, Jesus promises abundance. Isn't the resurrection of Jesus about taking back what we have lost? Isn't it about finding what we have been missing? Isn't the resurrection about filling up what we lack? Isn't it about making our lives the way they are supposed to be? One preacher said, Jesus Christ took our hell so we could take his heaven. He emptied himself so we could be filled to the brim. Now, I want to be careful here because you will not get everything at once. Not all these promises that the Lord makes through his resurrection are fulfilled immediately in your life. Plenty are. And though you don't get everything right away, in the end, you will not lack anything. That is why Scripture tells us that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no tears, there will be no regrets, there will be nothing to cry about. Because somehow in God's wisdom, in God's amazing power, in God's wonderful grace, He will somehow restore everything. I don't know how, but he says he will do that. And the one who conquered death, the one who already did this amazing thing for us in the empty tomb, I I can trust him that if he did that, he will do everything he told us. Not all at once, but eventually everything will be given to you because he has fought for it, he earned it for you, and he is happy to share it with you. A good analogy is that when you come to Jesus now, 
you get on the train with Jesus. You haven't achieved your destination. You're not totally sure what the destination is going to be, but you have the ticket, and you are with him on that train. And the train is going in the right direction. And the closer you get to the destination, the fuller your experience of joy and abundance becomes. Listen to how the servant of the Lord, Jesus the Messiah, describes his mission in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Are you poor? Jesus proclaims good news to you from the empty tomb. Is your heart broken? Jesus can mend it. Are you in any kind of prison? Are you in bondage? Jesus proclaims liberty, and he opens the prison doors for you. Are you mourning? Are you grieving today? Jesus can comfort you. Do you feel the ashes of guilt on your head? Jesus wants to replace it with a beautiful headdress. He has the oil of gladness to counter your deepest sorrow. Are you overwhelmed, shut down, about to give up? Jesus has prepared for you a garment of praise. I almost never wear a suit, but on Easter I do. Me, Dave Powell, and a couple other people, okay? Why? I need to be reminded that Jesus has earned for me a garment of praise. When you put on a suit, you feel better about yourself. Did you know that? <laughs> Especially me, because the, <laughs> the difference is drastic, you know. <laughs> when you put on a suit, you feel like maybe you're worth something. Maybe there is respect and dignity in your heart. Jesus gives you the garments of praise. Whose praise? His praise. His praise. He honors you and treasures you and loves you and accepts you, and he wants you to dress up for the occasion. Do you feel like a young seedling fighting the elements for survival? Jesus says you can be strong and secure like an oak of righteousness. Not in your own righteousness, by the way, but in his righteousness. His unbreakable, storm-safe righteousness. Are you looking over the ruins of your life? Jesus promises to rebuild. He will raise up the former devastations. All the ruined cities will be repaired. All the ancient ruins, all the devastations of many generations. Have you shared the spoils of his victory? Friends, he is offering everything to you. 
No condemnation, no loneliness, no lack, a new life, a new family, a new eternal abundance.